0: Hi, I'm Suspin, and welcome back to Everything Aya.
1: Hi, I'm Aditi, and we are this week talking about the coronavirus pandemic, where we are and what it's going to take to get back to normal, particularly the vaccine rollout. So Suspin, it's been a year since the pandemic started. It doesn't feel like that. Does that actually register to you? Yeah.
0: Um, in a, yes, it does register, but also feels like it's been a lot longer. And just thinking about the timeline of events, you know, from having the first case in January, uh, the first British death, February, lockdown, March, and it's still not over. We
1: just, so I think, I believe like the uh anniversary of the first lockdown anniversary of the first lockdown is on march 23rd we've mm-hmm. now just recently in the last few days crossed 2.5 million deaths globally if you remember like the and 2.5 million deaths globally 122k in the uk and 512 in the us do you remember like what the expectations were like when the pandemic started it was quite different wasn't it
0: oh oh yeah i mean if you look early back predictions of 20,000 deaths in the uk compare that to where we are i really don't think yeah no one realized just how bad it could be and i think limited expectations have really you know led to the downfall of a policy response and i think we have all suffered as a result it's
1: like a 610% uh you know that's how much over it is from what the expectation was because i remember I mean so our campus which I'm not going to name um our campus has a morgue built on it you know to handle excess debt it's just a really weird morbid reality isn't it like to Very have that grim. next to your library it's like should I go to the library should I go to the gym the gym is where it's built should I go to the gym should I like lift weights or bodybuilding in that type of form you know different mm. options there. but you know as uh, our vice chancellor would keep telling us a light at the end of the tunnel as the vaccines have been approved so the first one was approved in the UK on December 3rd and now there are currently over 200 candidates and it's been I believe 200 million doses of the vaccine that have been administered worldwide since the uh first authorization in December but is this Do you, Sussman, do you think like this is going to kind of bring normalcy back like what do you see
0: I, I think people have reacted, you know, extremely positively to the news of the vaccines. And I, I remember reading just the other day, I saw how Ticketmaster had seen like an enormous. I think it must have been. I think it said around five hundred or six hundred percent increase in like online traffic, mm. um, because of people looking forward to to the summer, to the potential of um, events returning, um, and especially with um, Boris Johnson recently releasing his four-phase uh, path out of you know out of lockdown everyone's got the hopes up but in you know in reality I think that there's still a lot to be considered and we shouldn't be too optimistic.
1: No I think you're completely right it's a bit odd I think that world leaders I think world leaders are more optimistic than the population at this point like for instance <laughs> kind of uh what is it he was saying oh you would be not able to travel by summer you know you're most likely going to be able to travel by summer it's quite a bold it's quite a bold thing to promise especially since all this have been you know broken arguably but uh, i don't know i think my my lack of optimism kind of comes to you know we have a vaccine but there's no guarantee of when we're going to get it, much less the rest of the world. where I think kind yeah. of in the positions where we happen to like live, you know, in the countries that we happen to be in. But that's just not the case for everyone.
0: Uh, this is a topic that we're going to touch on uh, a lot further on. But um, I, I think it's, we're really kind of it's it's hard to say that it's selfish because obviously everyone in this country like has been through it a lot, and I don't want to minimize that at all. But whilst we are talking about the potential for a mass vaccine rollout and the return to normalcy, a lot of countries across the world, you know, um, low-income, middle-income developing countries are facing the prospects of not receiving widespread vaccination until, you know, 2022,
1: 2023. Yeah, it's been told that for the best case scenario, you know, if you want to kind of prevent mutations, and the brunt of COVID from continuing, they'd have to be vaccinated by early 2022, but that's kind of nowhere near the mark. Mm. That's been predicted. And in part that's because, you know, a very small group of wealthy countries that comprise a very small percentage of the population, around 16%, have, you know, a stockpile of around 60% of the vaccine supply. That That
0: is, yeah, that's astounding.
1: But it goes further than that, because you look you look at individual countries in that list, you look at Canada, like you, I think you mentioned it earlier, do you want, what was it, Canada has, bought seven vaccines per citizen, or kind of pre-ordered that?
0: Yeah, Canada, um, I mean, Australia, Canada and Japan, although they count for 1% of the world's coronavirus cases, they've amassed more doses than all of Latin America, the Caribbean, which have closer to twenty percent of all the cases in the world. Yeah, a lot of these countries do seem to be simply exercising their wealth. Um, I mean, you can't you can't blame them for taking care of their own citizens, but to the degree they are essentially hoarding vaccines and overshooting rather than. You know, being moderate in their approach is, quite frankly, just bad. It's not good practice at all.
1: I do wonder, like, can you not blame them? Because I was, because they are very, they're very, you know, easy. They're very quick to blame countries in the regions that are seeing rises in COVID cases um, for like the variations that are coming up. Right. And they're saying, you know, you're practicing unsafe policy and things like that. But the way to stop these variations is to vaccinate the populations. Right. You you can argue that, you know, they're being counterproductive in that. Because the mutations are the largest threats that we're facing right now. And they've noted that, but they're not really doing anything to aid themselves. You know, a lot of the regions where we believe mutations will be coming from. Are not being aided. And there's all these predictions they know. They know about it. They're like, oh, we plan for this. We're like seeing this coming up. Going to take stricter, you know, uh, we're going to put stricter policy in to like restrict travel and whatnot. But that seems, that seems like clean up rather than you know, actually dealing with it and making sure that those variations are limited as possible by vaccinating these. Mm-hmm. Because it's been, it was reported, I believe, by um, the World Health Organization that we do currently have the vaccine supply to you know vaccinate everyone globally um by the set date if wealthy countries in the west are willing to share
0: I so I guess I should yeah I mean I suppose that's the issue with vaccine nationalism which is Mm. what you might want to call the action that these countries are taking whereby you know they're signing agreements with pharmaceutical companies to supply their own populations um ahead of other countries which as you've you know quite well pointed out is rather short-sighted when we're considering that the virus doesn't quite behave according to these principles that the virus will not respect you know sovereignty national boundaries it will spread regardless and it will mutate
1: it's just yeah like at the moment I, i do remember like i believe it was korea at the start of the pandemic they managed to curtail it quite well and there was one person like a one patient who kind of was out of order, and then they saw you know a reemergence in COVID. That's what we're going to see, you know, if we don't kind of have global vaccination. Doesn't matter if your country uh, country is vaccinated. We live in a globalized society, and that is what returning to normal means: returning to mobility, returning to kind of those globalized patterns. And that's not going to fly very well if you don't have kind of vaccine equity. You can't return to normal in those cases, but you know you can, there's been, there's been arguments that, you know, you need to cut Western countries flags. They've been, while they might not be sharing their own vaccines, they're investing in the initiative of COVAX, you know, to kind of bring vaccines globally and try and fight inequality. But is it really working? Like, is it really working at all?
0: I mean, COVAX is a, you know, it's, it's an initiative that should be supported. And in in principle, it is the right initiative by pooling together resources, especially from uh, more wealthier, better off countries um, in the interests of less economically developed countries to share the vaccine that way. It's a great idea in principle, but um, it was just earlier this year, Canada has been, you know, taking from... covax fund despite being a wealthy country who you know ahead of other developing countries i don't think that's you know it kind of flies in the face of the project
1: Uh, we should probably mention really quickly what the framework of covax is so covax's aim is to basically provide doses to 20 percent of the population in 92 uh, low middle income countries so that's roughly 3.6 billion people. Um, That's what the initiative is trying to tackle. And it's led by the World World Health Organization and Gavi uh, and the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. Um, But a majority of its funding is based on kind of generosity of wealthy countries. So there's no kind of steady stream of funding. And at the moment it's, I believe reached, it's almost, okay, no, how. it's still missing around 800 million from its fund go for this year. So it seems like this might, it's questionable if this is actually a priority for wealthy countries because of the lack of investments that are being put into it. But yeah, it's even with the lack of investments, there's also all types of barriers that they're facing kind of in the rollout. Um, Yeah, such as they're not delivering doses to people who, or doses to countries that don't have the infrastructure to actually store them. So, yeah, Sussman, do you want to speak on that?
0: Yeah, um, I mean, uh, quite a few of the vaccines require very specific uh, storing, so they require cold storage, um, which a lot of countries don't have the facilities to kind of handle and manage. Uh, which is a real issue. Um, there is the AstraZeneca vaccine, which doesn't require that, but is you know in a, seeing a lot of demand, and it's actually had to um, revise those production output estimates uh, to the annoyance of a lot of countries and to a lot of mm-hmm. tension. I
1: think there's at the moment the main kind of vaccines that are often talked about as Pfizer, Biotech, Moderna, uh, AstraZeneca. And, you know, two of those require code storage. And two of those are two dose, like two shots vaccines. But I, I don't know, I was looking up how code you have to store that. Um, and I apologize to, I guess everyone not in the US because it is in Fahrenheit, but it's negative 80 degrees Fahrenheit that you what you have to store it in for context be two degrees is zero degrees celsius so yeah it's not kind of easy for a lot of places to have that much less have the capacity to store a large quantity of the vaccines so yeah there is a lot of dependence i think on kind of vaccines that don't require that the AstraZeneca vaccine The good news is, you know, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine that got approved yesterday or the day before actually doesn't require code storage either and a single shot. So we'll see how production of that goes. But regardless, it seems like there is a bit of a gap for supplying vaccines and it seems like some countries are starting to step in.
0: Yeah. um, And I think that actually illustrates a really um, quite important and interesting concept in international relations, um so the idea of soft power um essentially there's hard and soft power um, and hard power is probably the one that comes to mind most easily um so you think of the the military of a state their the size of their army the weapons um, but also through alliances kind of their role in international organizations these kind of forms of power could be considered a hard power, whereas soft power, uh, owing to the name, is a lot more subtle um, in its influence. Um, And this whole, you know, COVID-19 and the vaccines have kind of illustrated the soft power of certain countries. So, such as Russia, they've been able to wield soft power um, by offering Essentially vaccine, you know, partaking in vaccine diplomacy along with countries such as India. Um and you know, by offering the vaccine to countries, whereas uh countries such as the United States and the UK, whilst they're engaging in vaccine nationalism and focusing inwards, countries like Russia and China, India, they're able to influence other countries by essentially just giving them vaccines.
1: Mm. Yeah, and a lot of countries, you know, they might not actually trust this vaccine, but they they feel like they have their hands tied behind their back. Uh, and it, it goes so far as, you know, um, yeah, at the moment, it there's just not a lot of options and the crisis is kind of getting worse and worse by the day. Uh, but in demonstrating the soft power, Russia and China and India are kind of facing some logistical issues at this point. For example, they may have over-promised two countries that they're giving vaccines the amount they can give because they haven't been able to vaccinate their entire population yet and are actually running into logistical issues in ensuring they have both for the population and to export outwards. Uh, and it also is becoming an issue in Russia in particular uh, a kind of trust between the citizens and the government in believing this vaccine. So in Russia, uh, only 2.2 million Russians have been vaccinated so far for the first dose. And yeah, there's just a lot of distrust between Russian citizens and the government. And you know, if this is kind of within the state, this also shows outwardly. In Brazil, for example, they've claimed that there's a large distrust for the Russian vaccine and people are, you know, cautious and kind of weighing out their options of whether to get it or not, but it is coming down to the point that everyone is rushing to get back to normal. There's a question of, you know, do you have time to ask these questions? Do you kind of, you know, almost in a way, shut up and take it? And for that reason, a lot of countries feel like their choice has been curtailed by kind of the lack of option and the lack of, and kind of the strangulation of supplies that, you know, they have to just accept this. But, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting way to conduct diplomacy, in particular, uh, you know, when we think of soft power we think of the other. They might be a little bit more agreeable to things that the country, the country that's kind of demonstrating the power wants. Uh, the example of India is really interesting. India has a 49-country vaccine programme called the Friendship Programme. So one of the Uh, nations that they like to help is the Seychelles and they've only suffered a single COVID death but they've already received 150,000 free vaccine doses from this program and it has been reported that India has been looking to establish a military presence there to keep tabs on India's uh, on China's Indian Ocean activities so the Seychelles Islands have rejected this you know kind of um uh proposal before, but there is an idea that the locals might change their minds due to kind of this um, power that India is using to kind of vaccinate them and make sure that they're, I guess, in a way being looked after, because there is a lack of US and the West, I guess, doing the so-and-so called humanitarian role in this pandemic now.
0: Again, you know, that's the short-sightedness of vaccine nationalism, because whilst, you know, they're focusing on themselves other countries are able to step in essentially and yeah again that's with potentially strings attached so it's it's worth considering um China as well their um overtures are. I think they've got a long way to go even with um their donation of vaccines given a a lot of blame um I think perhaps rightfully, should be cast on China's initial handling. So even with the vaccine diplomacy going on, I think they've got a long way to go uh, before they can really regain that trust. But I think given the dire situation, a lot of countries will ignore that and gladly take the vaccine donations that they give. Mm.
1: You see that, like again, widely with... uh... You see that widely with Russia and the EU as well. You know, there's a lot of distrust of Russia in the EU, but there's been fragmentation of EU countries now accepting the vaccine, the Russian vaccine, uh, because of, I think, the EU's slow rollout. And there is this idea of, you know, what, what does, how does this change Russia's influence in the region?
0: Yeah, the EU is a really <laughs> interesting country to, well, country. The EU is, a, is very interesting to look at, given You've got 27 countries there, um, but as part of their vaccine rollout, they've essentially uh, acted to work as a single block um, when dealing with pharmaceutical companies in, you know, producing the vaccine. And this this has allowed them a lot of benefits, um, which might be, you know, important to get, interesting to consider in light of Brexit. So the EU's managed to secure vaccines at a lower rate than countries like the UK and America, um, and they've also achieved better terms in terms of the the the, the legalities of vaccines um, and like the liabilities that come with it. Um, and I, I read this Politico article, which essentially said, I, I believe it quoted a EU diplomat who said, you know God knows what, like the UK and America has agreed to in in terms of those legalities. However, this has come, you know, given there are twenty seven countries, given they are working as a single block, there is a loss of bureaucracy, and it's been a very slow process, and it hasn't been a full, it hasn't been a united process the full time either. Um, countries, especially Germany. Um, France they've essentially acted bilaterally and engaged with the pharmaceutical companies uh, on a one-to-one basis just um, you know showing disunity and there's a lot of and this is amongst other countries as well so it yeah. hasn't been a full effort
1: yeah I mean as a uh... The Hungarian president, Viktor Orban, said there is no such thing as a Eastern vaccine or Western vaccine. There are only good vaccines and bad vaccines and countries are having to fight that for themselves and, you know, get to that end. The EU, while it might have political stances at this point, have people dying and there is kind of a rush between governments to stop that as fast as they can. And if countries are fragmenting away from it, I think it just pushes more and more governments to act on the road at this point. But you know again as you brought up earlier i think i think you do have a point it makes sense that countries want their population vaccinated it's not it is there is a go i guess at the moment just to stop seeing bodies drop you know in your own population but that yeah that go isn't going to be kind of fulfilled for quite a while still because as much as people want to save you know their own citizens this is there's a long road to go there's a long road i think absolutely normalcy and yeah it looks as you mentioned earlier it looks like until late 2023 early 2024 most lcm countries low middle-income countries won't be vaccinated entirely but that's going to have greater repercussions you know not just Uh, you know, a stop from return back to normalcy in the way that people can you know, travel and go on their summer holidays, but very much the bodies of poor people, poor brown and black bodies being impacted, there's going to be impacts on the global supply chain as well. But yeah, I think at the moment, people are trying to put band-aids on this issue on every leap that they find. Yeah.
0: I mean, just to sorry go ahead no i'm just to touch on well you know talking about normalcy i'm i'm really curious what that will actually envision given Mm. that we've essentially securitized this i think i think rightfully Mm. so so the idea of securitizing an issue whereby um the the government the state will perceive um Perceive an issue and turn it into a national security threat that must be dealt with urgently, given that, you know, I think rightfully so, the COVID-19 pandemic has been treated as such and we've gone, you know, above and beyond. We've implemented national lockdowns. We've made um, test and trace like an ordinary part of our lives whereby, you know, you if you want, well, if you wanted during that brief period out of lockdown to go somewhere. You'd have to scan the QR code. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, These are really ex- extreme measures. Um, and is normalcy gonna be the removal of that? Or will that still be there? Is that the new normal? I think it's really worth considering how far and things can change when we start taking these new measures um, deemed necessary as part of everyday normalcy.
1: No, that's that's a good thing to bring up. I think a lot of people are fixated on the moment, at the moment of like the, how the economy is going to look post this, like there's a prediction that's going to be like nine, that just uh, for the disruptions and kind of vaccines, vaccination is going to have a disruption of like $9 trillion, Uh, perhaps, you know, we, we want, we look at that, but economies can recover, but I think, economies can recover and I think somewhat come back to what we think of them as. But everyday life and more of the mundane things that that's a bit of a different thing, you know. At the moment, as you mentioned, like through securitization, a lot of extraordinary measures have been taken and arguably this may become the norm, because as we look at other health crises such as climate change there is an increase of pandemics that are going to be occurring in the future. There's an increase of surveillance that's going to be needed, right? We're heading in a direction where at the moment a lot of health experts have predicted this isn't the worst pandemic to come, this is a baby pandemic. <laughs> so <laughs> we, we might have to change our lifestyles to adapt to that. And you know um, in the short term that might just look like you know wearing masks even post the pandemic a period of time to kind of you know ensure that people stay safe but long term that might have to change the way we travel the way we consume you know how available the things that we consume are readily available to us because the regions that make all of this make a lot of these things have been hard you know hit hard and aren't getting a lot of relief from the countries that consume their products so it is really interesting and i think within kind of the idea of normalcy one of the one of the top things kind of looking forward going into the future for this is you know what what are we going to do um how exactly how exactly do you change your behavior i guess like how how exactly do you change your behavior when this all winds down because i think there's suspicion of the ch- like state for some people right there's like this idea of staying away from people kind of naturally and this idea of isolation and these behaviors are going to influence our politics as well going forward it's going to be interesting how we bounce back from that if ever
0: definitely i i hope one of the the main thing we should you know world leaders should take from this entire experience and walk away with is the fact that it's you know you can't just react to a crisis when it happens. That mm. prevention and having things in place early on, and even if they don't get used for whatever length of time, having safeguards in place matters tremendously. I think one of the main reasons for, well, a significant factor for why um, South Asian countries handled this so well um, is because they've had you know, experience before with um, epidemics, mm-hmm. <laughs> specific names isn't jumping to mind at the moment, but oh. having their experience in place is very important.
1: No, you're completely right with that. Like, yeah, they have they had uh, prior experiences, and it, there is a question of Western countries will actually take this forward and kind of act on it, because arguably, you know, through this pandemic regardless of the fact that it's been a year and we've gone through multiple lockdowns and you can say we've learned a lot from, you know, the death show going by the day. It does still feel like this pandemic is, there is a question of, you know, what exactly are we protecting? Is it the economy? Is it the people? Because you look, especially in England, a lot of of the policies that were meant to aid people, um, you know, I think kind of allowed the spread of the pandemic further, especially like the eat out to help out policy and things like that. So I don't know when when this all passes, or even at the moment, what is considered important is going to be tested continuously. Um, and there is kind of no no easy way to kind of figure out how to balance everything again. I think there is a question of if you're going to put economics at the top, if we're going to see something like this come up again and again and again.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah.
0: On on the topic of the economic side of Covid, this is something that we will cover um, in depth next week. Um, As we discuss. I think with specific focus in regards to the debt crisis that has emerged uh, as a result of COVID-19 in developing countries as well as advanced economies, which is really kind of like this is the 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 economic impact of COVID-19 is um, I think by secondary to the public health concerns. I think that's primary, but it's definitely worth noting that we've spent so long battling and so much in terms of resources battling COVID that uh, for years the impact will still resonate even once we do eventually recover.
1: Also just you know people who are dead and people who have lost you know loved ones that's something they're never going to get back this is in kind of you know like the 2008 market crash in which the thing that was lost was you know something that could be recovered this is a very real loss of lives something in the millions and something you know a lot of people have been touched by it is yeah going to be kind of a haunting thing I think for years to come but on that note we should yeah we should maybe give our audience a bit of time to digest our podcast and a little bit of recovery time until next week then yeah
0: let's wrap it up all right thanks for tuning in
1: goodbye